Game Studies Study Buddies Special Edition Episode something. One of the one of the episodes. This is our is it, special holiday episode, Michael. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's is it technically episode seven? I think I believe it is episode seven. Oh yeah, yeah I am uh, Cameron Kunzelman. Uh, I'm Michael Lutz. And uh, yeah, so this is a little bit of an irregular episode because uh, we're busy. Yes, extremely busy. Yeah, we're, we're we're busy people. The holidays are always a hard time for the uh, the podcasting set. Um, <laughs> and we just didn't have a lot of time to read a book uh, this month and uh, and talk about it. So we thought we would save the next book, which is "Gaming the Stage" by Gina Bloom. There you go. Um, I couldn't. Re- I thought maybe there was a subtitle that I couldn't. Remember. There is a subtitle, but I cannot remember it exactly. It's something about like the early modern commercial theater and playable media. See, yeah, that's a lot closer than I would have gotten. Yeah. I would have been like, ah, uh, you know, the stage again. <laughs> um, but so instead of, of like trying to hammer through that uh, maybe too quickly and then uh, giving it less attention than we might normally have, we just decided to do a little bit of a special holiday episode where we uh, talk about what we've done so far this year and then answer some questions. Yeah. Um, I hope that there were jingle bells added to the opening track. I'm just going to mm. say that right now. Um, okay. Let me make a note of that. <laughs> uh, Definitely going to just be me yelling the word jingle bells. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, well, you know, how, how have you felt about the podcast so far this year, Michael? Um, it's been good. It's been good. I like, I like doing a regular podcast. I've only guested on things before, and there's something nice about uh, just sort of being able to plan out, like, you know, reading something and then just being like, and now I'm going to talk about it with my pal, um, especially because working sort of in an alt-academic uh, path right now, I don't have a lot of reason other than, like, my own essays that, like, I'm revising and things like that uh, to do sort of what we would call, I guess, like, new research, right? Looking into new things. Um, and uh, so just sort of personally, it's been nice uh, to have this uh, excuse to uh, really learn a lot more about something that because of uh, kind of the way disciplines work out um, was not really like was important to me when I was in grad school, but was uh, sort of underemphasized in in my own uh, like dissertation research and things like that. Um, So personally, it's been great. And I've liked the response to it. I like that people seem to like this podcast. Yeah, we have uh, a surprising number of listeners, I would say. (laughs) Um, And I think probably some of that has to do with um, the fact that there's not other podcasts that are like this. You know, Mm -hmm. that's certainly got to be part of it. Some other part of it probably has to be that uh, we exist and we write publicly and and, uh, you make games that are are well celebrated. So, you know, we kind of have this like... Well, uh, I think people are curious as to like what's their opinion about mm. the nitty gritty weirdness that is uh, academic game studies. Yeah. Um, so I yeah I'm, I'm incredibly appreciative of, of everyone out there who's been listening. Um, it's been and and responding and tweeting quotes from the show, <laughs> which is very uh, your uh, your quote from the last episode about yeah. Nelly's uh, hot dog penis or yep. whatever. Uh, people got a lot of laughs out of that i was gonna say it's uh it's the defining the defining quote from game studies study buddies 
Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the shirt. I was going to say, that's the... <laughs> that's the shirt. It, it's like a clip art of, like, a smiling hot dog, like, holding holding a Glock. <laughs> <laughs> With the Nelly uh, Band-Aid under it. Yes. <laughs> All right, well, uh, um, Photoshop wizards out there. <laughs> There's a good chance that if you make that, it goes on a shirt. <laughs> um, wow, that that certainly is interesting. We'll 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 keep that in the thing. But yeah, but yeah, no, I I agree for the most part. I mean, this is not the only regular show I do. I have of course do uh, Mages and Murder Dads, the flagship show. Yes. I would say for the the Range Touch Network of which this is a part. Um, and uh, but they're very very different shows, mm-hmm. you know. That that is a, a show that's about paying close attention to genre and uh, a specific game and like our experience of that game. And this is kind of like you know very blown out perspective where I feel like both you and I every episode we are reading the book, but we are also trying to do the best job that we can of um, contextualizing that book and then bringing our own particular disciplinary knowledge. Um, yeah to bear on it so that people kind of get the game studies thing and then how does this book fit into the world of media studies or literary studies more broadly right yeah yeah it's hard to do this is a a hard podcast (laughs) it really is Mm -hmm. but yeah I've enjoyed it do you have any um, big statements you want to make about the show what was your favorite moment of one book that we've read so far Oh, well, my favorite moment is retroactive, probably. <laughs> in in the Kawa episode, I'm assuming that everyone who listens to the show has listened to every episode, but if not, uh, in the Kawa episode, there's one, uh, you made a note to me in the notes, in your <laughs> notes, where you were like, this sounds like a Metal Gear Solid villain. <laughs> um, and then I contacted a uh, good friend of the Range Touch Network and uh, uh, Jack, who who does a um, revolver ocelot voice all the time, um, <laughs> and he also does a very good Otacon, by the way. So anyone who needs voice work done for either of those, um, okay, can can contact uh, Jack. But then I had him do a dramatic reading, and we actually went back and forth a couple times. He he gave me a couple different takes of it, um, <laughs> and then I spent a non-zero amount of time uh, going and sourcing the exact like codec click. <laughs> uh, from Metal Gear Solid footage, I got the helicopter noise to put in the background, like you would be listening to it in the helicopter in Metal Gear Solid Five. I did a lot of work, and then when it all came together and it was in the episode, I thought it was very, very, very funny. Um, so that's not necessarily a favorite part of a book, but that is a that passage is very funny. And then what you brought to it was funny to me, and then all the additional work really, really paid it off. Um, so that's probably my favorite. That's, I guess it's not a favorite. That's a favorite podcast moment. That is yeah. my favorite book moment. I mean, but. it, it works. I don't know. I was just I just tried to give you like a narrow space rather than just being like, what was your favorite thing ever? But uh, bugs getting high is pretty good. Yeah, no, I was just like, Cal- getting high. I feel like Kawa was like a, a real like gold mine of weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like between weird and bad, <laughs> weird and bad, like between the ants getting high and like the weird, uh, like hatred for clowns. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Pagliacci's a villain, <laughs> but doctor, I am Pagliacci. <laughs> oh no, but doctor, doctor, I am a bug. <laughs> getting high. Um, um yeah. okay. 
yeah, I, th I, th I think I enjoyed that a lot. I enjoyed reading um, Hamlet on the Holodeck a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that that I think is by far our longest episode. Uh, <laughs> and I think some people really enjoyed that and some people didn't. I thought we had a very productive and interesting conversation with Janet Murray afterward uh, yeah. on Twitter. Um, yes. Although she, she did not enjoy some of the, the criticism and remarks we made about the book. Yeah. Um, but and which is her her right yeah. and she wrote the book and uh, <laughs> she's, she's allowed yeah yeah you're allowed to to have those feelings for sure um but i thought that was actually a very productive conversation yeah no i actually i really liked revisiting uh hamlet on the hollow deck as well uh i mean for a lot of the same reasons and then i think i mentioned this in the episode but one of the things that i found really compelling about that book specifically was um the way it imagined the future of of multi-form narrative and sort of seeing how uh there were various things that it got right but then also like things that it got right in really unexpected ways and then things that just sort of never caught on um and sort of like seeing how all of this speculation um hits on threads that are still active today but are are active not necessarily in the ways that were imagined in in the you know early to mid 90s yeah, a hundred percent. Because I think it it was like um, it was like literally I think like the week after uh, we posted that episode didn't didn't like Emily Short or someone um, in that kind of circle like come out with like a new system for like proc gen uh, NPC dialogue or something. Uh, yes, I believe that she made a blog post about someone else who had yes. done that okay. similar thing. Right, so right, yeah, right. basically. Um, Emily Short is the 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 uh, the monoculture's funnel into <laughs> what the subculture is doing. Yeah, um, for, at least for me. Um, but uh, but yeah yeah. I mean I and I think what's very interesting. I mean we talked about it in that episode, but it is still really interesting to me that the the things that that sub community of people are interested in, they have continued to pursue, and that's mm -hmm. still an active research project for all of those people, both uh, critically and programmatically um it's it's something to be respected even though it doesn't really make its way into i think capital g games as often as we might hope yeah um but i am interested in you know i i think it'll be interesting when um the new game from inkle or ink studios or whatever mm -hmm. comes out the one that's about uh translating runes right i forget it's, I, I, I keep thinking it is Heaven Will Be Mine, but that is not <laughs> No, that's not heavy, Heaven Will Be Mine. No. Heaven's Vault. Okay, all right. Heaven's yes. in there, I knew it. You were close. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested into, especially looking at some of the stuff that um, the one of the designers for that game, like watching a talk he gave recently about like good games writing. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, that's a, that's, a, that's a long digression, but I do think Hamlet on the Holodeck still gives some gives us some tools to talk about that in mm -hmm. ways that maybe other uh, academic books do not yeah which is productive yeah um i actually just want to point out that we got to this um this is actually related to one of the questions we got if we want to move that way now let's let's move that way yeah we're, okay. we're just for, just so people know if they haven't looked at the timestamp, this episode is going to be much shorter than normal game study study buddies episodes mm -hmm. it's going to be like an hour or something yeah <clears throat> Um, so uh, we got a question. Uh, we got a mixture of questions, some from people in the uh, Discord, the Range Touch Discord, mm -hmm. and some at our email address. Um, this was one from the Discord. This is uh, from Emily. 
Uh, building on the discussion in the Murray episode that I found really interesting, uh, because video games as an object of study are so wrapped up in being quote-unquote cutting-edge or quote-unquote innovative tech, uh, a lot of game studies books try to make predictions or claims about what video games will be capable of or what they will be like a few years down the line. In hindsight, which of these predictions held up poorly and which were surprisingly accurate? Um, and there's actually a sort of like... Uh, addendum here uh where they go on and talk about uh specifically this this thought was sparked because they um they saw a cfp for a conference is this yeah for a conference that was um uh about uh games of empire um which is i think a very sort of you know foundational book for the discipline um but also uh, as, as as Emily puts it, uh, very 2008. Not in a bad way, I'm quoting here, but there are a lot of things it didn't foresee, uh, like, you know, sort of the, the, the way that it kind of centralizes World of Warcraft and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts here? Uh... Hmm. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can speak necessarily to what what the books that we've read so far have done, but I can speak to the the broader question. I think I think part of the problem is that game studies books and game studies scholars, by being scholars of technology, are encouraged to do this work. You know what I mean? Like Meaning I, the speculative or Yeah, just mm-hmm. to speculate about like the economy. Um mm. and I think part of that has to do with the people who have become very successful in game studies have kind of been people who or, or people who have crossed over I should say are are people who are are claiming to kind of read the tea leaves to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um I'm thinking of people like Edward Castronova or Ian Bogost or mm-hmm. um uh, Jane McGonigal, mm-hmm. right, who has a PhD in performance studies, um, mm-hmm. and her dissertation is a very long and very interesting document. Um, and I think that, weirdly enough, if we read a Jane McGonigal thing for this podcast, we would actually probably read her dissertation. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's if you if if you are interested in Jane McGonigal in a, in a general way, and you have not read her dissertation, which is like available uh, in the collection from the university she came from, it is. It is an interesting document to check out. All right. I'll uh, make to a note see, of that. Yeah, to see the background for a lot of the stuff that we know her for, you know, mm-hmm. kind of as a public speaker and things like that. Right. Um, so, yeah, so uh, that's all to say that I think the people who have been very successful in game studies and been able to pitch out from there have called some shots correctly. Um, you know, uh, Ian Bogos kind of called the Facebook game shot. Mm-hmm. Castronova index the way that online economies work way before anyone way before like steam you know came up with their big robust money extracting machine mm-hmm. um so all those different things uh, uh, i think have something to do with it i also think that there's a burden on just tech uh, uh, on scholars of technology generally to be able to say to make predictive claims about the future period if mm-hmm. th- if the technologies we are using now produce effects on the body or on the mind, which is always at the heart of, or not always, but most of the time, at the heart of a book of media studies, then therefore you need to be able to empirically extrapolate that into the future. I, I, you know, I don't think that that's a, um, I don't think that extrapolation, I don't think that extrapolation is like unwarranted. 
I think probably, and you and I uh, certainly make claims about the ways that games do things to people and what that means for them going on down the line. I think that's something that we are trying to do in scholarship. Um, but the problem is that, you know, for for me, if, if you're a video game scholar, by the time your book comes out, the books that you were writing, or the games you were writing about, are already <laughs> old. Yeah. They're extremely old in, by the memory of video games, right? Yeah. So your experiment, your extrapolation, um, your speculation can be proven wrong almost immediately. As opposed <laughs> to if I'm like, well, the way that cinema functions today, um, in 10 years, that might be different. And I have a safe margin of like seven years before <laughs> anyone knows if I'm right or wrong or not. Right. Right. And I have a six month margin for video games. Right. And then like, I'm, I'm like, well, here's how people may think of Hamlet in the future. And it's mm-hmm. like, guess what? They probably will. Like people think a lot of ways about Hamlet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you, you get the benefit of like, uh, the robustness of, of Hamlet, right? Like right. you can do a lot of different things and you can make a safe guess I don't. I can't make a safe guess about what World of Warcraft or what MMOs will look like in two years. Right. Um, and I think that anyone who thinks that they can, in a serious way, really thinks they can call the shot of two years from now. Um, either A has their hand in the development of a platform uh, and they're invested <laughs> in that, or B they're just kind of making their best possible guess. But the vagaries of technology, of capitalism, of finance, of speculation—all those different things are. Um, they are predictable within a boundary right that's about all you get right you don't get to call your shot necessarily well like holy hell who could have predicted Fortnite? yeah right like (laughs) no one was out here being like the next big thing is gonna be uh everyone like falls onto an island and then you just shoot each other until there's one left (laughs) well but i mean what this is the this is the interesting thing though right i think you can call that shot because there's h1z1 there's daisy they don't quite work right PUBG mm. comes out. I, I think you're right that I, I think you can call the game format to some mm. degree. Mm-hmm. But I, where, where I think you're right about that is you cannot call the shot of Epic Games will release a game that they have been working on for like six years. It will be terrible. No one will be interested in playing it. <laughs> PUBG will come out and and Epic Games will very quickly pivot <laughs> this failed game essentially into a very popular you know, one of the largest games worldwide. Yeah. Um, I I don't think anyone can predict that because it's a decision that was made in the past year, right? It's not right. a long-form decision that they were making. Um, they did it fairly quickly because A, or I think not because A or B, but because they had the tech and the capability to emulate something that was already successful and to improve upon the formula. Um, yeah, I don't think, in, in, uh by the same token, right, I think that if I were writing an essay about PUBG, right when PUBG came out, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds for people who don't know, if I were writing about that, I don't think that I would have predicted or anyone would have predicted that the mobile version of that game would have more players than Fortnite does a year <laughs> later. 200 million people play PUBG on their phone, and that's not including people in China. Wow. Yes. Right, and that's I think four times. I think I think Fortnite has fifty million players, or no, maybe PUBG. No, I'm sorry, PUBG for um, PC has fifty million players, so it has four times as many players 
than the PC version of the game. Like, these are moves, these are massive economic and design and conceptual moves that mm-hmm. I think they're just impossible to call a shot on the timeline that academic publishing requires. Right. No. Okay. I think we addressed that question pretty well. Yeah. Um, let's see. I mean, I like we'll, Games of Empire. We got to do Games of Empire. We do have to do right? Games of Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm playing. Like, I was, I mean, I don't know when, but like definitely within the next year. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Uh, well, I will just go to another question. Um, and uh, dear study buddies, but actually just Cameron. Mm-hmm. Great. How is your academic inquiry into Kingdom Hearts going? Did it go at all? If so, what's your opinion as a latecomer on the appeal of Kingdom Hearts, of its place in the mechanical space of the earliest 2000s? I am myself a savant when it comes to Tetsuya Nomura's masterpiece, but I am always interested in new perspectives from those with high honors such as yourself. Stay frosty, the keyhole cackler. I just, I really wonder who sent this email. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the keyhole cackler. I guess there are a lot of assumptions built into this question. Um, one, I'm, I'm not having an academic inquiry into Kingdom Hearts. I'm just playing the games. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't, I, I have no plans on writing anything. Uh, I mean, I'm going to write something about Kingdom Hearts. But oh, you absolutely are. I, you. Yeah. Uh, it'll, it, I think this episode will not be out by the time I write the piece. So, no. <laughs> uh, I will have written, by the time you listen to this episode, I will have written something that is about, um, uh, Twin Peaks and Kingdom Hearts, but <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the the question also says that I'm a latecomer to the appeal of Kingdom Hearts. I'm I'm not a latecomer to Kingdom Hearts. I played the original Kingdom Hearts on the PS2, and I played it again fairly recently, like in the past three years. Um, and I've played Kingdom Hearts two most of the way through uh, several years ago. So I'm not a latecomer. I just don't. I'm just not in it. You know. Yeah. Uh, um. I like it. It's good. That's my answer to the question. Okay, well, there we are. Um. Yeah, they're fun <laughs> games. Uh, the PS4 port's very good. The load times are very, very short. <laughs> good. As Dude. someone who has never played Kingdom Hearts, I will I will take your word on all of this. Mm. Oh, maybe that's the... Um, oh, I don't know if I have time for three podcasts in my life, but yeah. that would be a good one. Has anyone gonna... taken you up on your Homestuck podcast yet? No one. No one yet. Oh. Um, but I would say, I was gonna say the, the companion podcast to Mages and Murder Dads is me and you doing, like, Mickey Mouse and Murder Dads. I don't know. Uh, Kingdoms and Keyblades. Come on. Kingdoms and Keyblades. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> uh, maybe we'll do that. I will say, I can't remember the name of the show, but the... Uh, 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 Astrid and Reed over at Bullet Points have a behind the Patreon paywall uh, podcast where they have played through all of Kingdom Hearts. And I'm finishing Kingdom Hearts 3, or Kingdom Hearts 2 before I go and listen to it, but I am uh, very interested in that. So that's a that's a pitch. If you want to hear some smart people play through King, the Kingdom Hearts series already, uh, that's one. Right. It's called like the Blood God or something. <laughs> the name of it. Um, do you want me to read the next one to you? Let me. Yes, yes, no, sure. All please right. do. This is email number two. Hi guys, that's my email voice. Uh, okay, it's, it's not. No, really enjoying the podcast so far. Keep up the great work. As a fledgling academic myself, um, uh, open is that parentheses? Yeah, parentheses. Yeah. Just starting a maths PhD. Uh, close parentheses. I find it's easy to get bogged down in the minutia without a clear view 
of the bigger picture. I was wondering if you could give a brief overview of how game studies came to be and what are some problems of interest to current academics in the field. Thanks, Joe in Oxford, UK. Thanks for your question, Joe. Yep. Uh, well, wow. I feel like this is probably a better question for you to answer uh, because you're really more of the game studies person. You're the one who has kind of the, the weirder, more obscure readings. Um, and, and kind mm-hmm. of like you have you have all of that like you want to know about like all of the weird intellectual shifts in in the study of early modern drama i got you covered but my mm-hmm. my understanding of the history of game studies really is kind of like i mean the kawa episode probably would be uh, another good place to to check it or another good place to check in and talk about this because right it sort of comes out of this um weird weird socio-anthropology medievalist kind of kind of fusion of interests yeah yeah i think uh, i'm gonna try to keep the answer kind of brief um uh because i think probably i think after we read a few more books i think we can probably do like a big update you know Mm -hmm. it's like an hour of like this is all we know you know that kind of thing um so joe in oxford uk be looking out for that but here's my shortest answer is um and this is kind of pulled together from some different resources the the episode of tone control which was steve gainer's um interview podcast where he just interviewed video game people in a general sense the episode where he interviews frank lance uh, who is now the director of the Game Center at NYU is fascinating because it gives a little bit of a history of some of the, I don't know, movements in the early 2000s where practitioners were interested in reconvening some of the history of games to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like where, this is not the only place where this happened, but this is where the standardization of Huizinga, Kawa, Bernard Suits, Mm. Um, Bernie DeCoven, the idea of bringing all those people together into a constellation that constitutes, quote-unquote, the history of games or game studies in the 20th century. That's part of it. So I would say listen to that. Uh, There's a very interesting anecdote in that episode where Frank Lance says that in order for uh, Katie Salen and Eric Zimmerman to put together the Game Design Reader, which is a fascinating document that is basically just a huge number of pieces of writing about games from a lot of different perspectives. Uh, It gets taught as a college textbook still. Um, It is a companion to their game design uh, textbook that gets used as a game design textbook too. But it's from the early 2000s. And what Lance says is that Salen and Zimmerman and Lance and a few other people basically just went to the NYU library and went and pulled everything they could find about games. Hmm. And so that means that there are some inclusions and some exclusions that are based on NYU's collection uh, that are based on what surfaces when you're looking for games specifically. So, for example, you know, I, I've talked about this a few times on the show. I'm a huge fan of CLR James's Beyond a Boundary, but if you were to read that and you were to look for it, it's not it's not a game studies book, or it's not a book about games. It is a biography that is kind of about politics that is centered around games. So I when I read it, I think, of course, it's a game studies book. I think if you were searching for it in a library, if you were getting people to tell you what they were, what books they thought were about games, I don't think that game would come up, or that book would come up. So I, I think that that accounts for some historical inclusions and exclusions that happened. Um, 
And if anyone has any additional information about this anecdote, I would love to hear it. But th- this is just me recounting something I've heard Frank Lance say. So that's one level. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, there are lots of people, like you were saying, Michael, um, you know, kind of the the Hosinga Homo Ludens, the Kalwa um, suits, like I was talking about before. There are these kind of disparate little blips of the role, the relationship between games and society in the 20th century. There is a micro movement that I am fascinated in, and if I had infinite amounts of time to do research, um, this would be the thing I would be writing a book on. Uh, I don't, and so this is you know my um, my little side project where I just collect citations and read these books. But there was a movement of people um, in the 1980s and the early 1990s who were medievalists. They were classicists, and they were looking at Greek texts about play. And then they were reading that in context of all kinds of other different things. Um, so these are people like uh, Speriosu, um, who's Dionysus uh, Reborn, I think is the name of the book, is, is an early book of game studies. Um, these are people like James S. Hans, uh, who wrote this book called Playing, Playing With the World. Um, I always get it confused. The title confused with the John Peterson book about the history of D&D. But so these are people <laughs> who are in literary studies or they're in philosophy, and they're just trying to figure out like what the philosophy of games is. Uh, and there's a lot of them, and they're all kind of doing this kind of stuff. And for whatever reason that I don't quite understand, those die out or those people stop publishing on that, or these kind of conferences stop happening. And then we get what is kind of the birth of contemporary game studies, which is in the early 2000s, and that's people like Ian Bogost, um, uh, Mia Consalvo, Gonzalo Frasca, all those different people, these kind of big names uh, in the field, some of whom are practitioners, some of whom are straight-up academics, some of whom are just in the middle, and they're going to things like DIGRA, um, and they are creating a, they are transforming something from a set of disparate subdisciplines, subdisciplines in literary studies, in media studies, in film studies, in um, computer science, and they are trying to bring all of that together into one kind of monodiscipline. Um, I think it is up to everyone's own uh, decision over whether that worked or not. <laughs> Um, I think there's still like a, a pretty severe split, uh, you know, because certainly I think, you know, Michael, you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, but the kind of books that you were encouraged to read about games in your graduate experience would not be the same as the ones that I was encouraged to read. No, absolutely not. Um, although maybe by the end that was less true. Um, mm-hmm. if only because I think by, by the end of my grad school, uh, career, uh, we were the, the English department was kind of realized like there, there were a couple of faculty members who who were who had been pushing for this um and we got some new hires uh that were taking in more of that uh media studies approach right um sort of uh i mean justin hodgson who uh was was one of the readers of my dissertation he was hired in like my last couple of years in the program um and he's a guy who you know like structured a class on world of warcraft in like this really he's he's a comp rep guy and he structured his class on uh game studies like specifically looking at world of warcraft and the syllabus progresses like a world of warcraft skill tree Hmm. (laughs) like this is like this is the sort of stuff that was happening uh in my department um by the time that i left so i think maybe some and to some extent there's uh going to be more cross-pollination 
Um, but you know, uh, otherwise, I would say you know there is there is a difference in in how the how how games is imagined uh, depending on kind of the subfield from which you're approaching. Yeah, a hundred percent. So to so with that fragmentation in mind, and maybe the fragmentation is becoming less. Um, uh, with with that in mind, I would say, like, uh, to sum up my whole answer, A, this will be its own podcast at some point. I think probably we'll just read, we'll find a book that's, like, trying to do this work. Maybe um, uh, Clara Fernandez's mm. book that's, like, how to write about games. Or, or, no, that's Ian Bogus' book. But her book that's about how to do games criticism, that mm-hmm. I think it, it kind of at its core is trying to address this question. Um, but I would say, basically the broadest stroke argument is that in the 20th century there were a lot of people who were trying to understand a philosophy of play and a philosophy of games mainly by looking at social structures and mainly by looking at textual objects uh, and philosophy Mm -hmm. the big move that I think characterizes contemporary game studies um, in, in distinction from that is that they're doing the philosophy in theory but they are also looking at application cases. Um, and they're sometimes they're building things, sometimes they're doing ethnographic research, sometimes they're doing sociological stuff, um, but there's a little bit more of a play is less abstract for contemporary game studies than it once once was. And as someone who loves a good abstraction, I kind of <laughs> yearn for this, this like, uh, you know, uh, classical style or whatever, or at least find it very fascinating. And I would really encourage everyone, and I, I um, recommend this book all the time and constantly, uh, but the James Hahn's book that I mentioned uh, is, is a big one for me. It, it is not in print anymore, but you can get a used copy for like 15 bucks, or you can get it at your local library. Use your academic libraries, people. Use your academic libraries before you lose them. Reading Rainbow, yep. little like stinger there. Ba bum bum, ba bum bum. I thought about that being our other, um, or this is not reading Rainbow, but uh, the more you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, Rainbow, but with gay yeah. study study buddies as the text. <laughs> I thought that could be fun. <laughs> Uh, all right <laughs> but thanks for that question sorry for the incredibly long answer but right i love how you started that by saying like i'm going to try to keep this brief and then <laughs> and i talk solid for what appears to be seven minutes yeah <laughs> sorry uh so i'll move on to the next email <clears throat> long time listener first time caller is there a game for either or both of you that sticks out in your mind as pointing you towards media and or game studies what was it about that game Thanks, y'all, and happy holidays. Chris. It would be really weird if, like, the two of us both had, like, the same game that made us want to be game studies scholars. Okay, okay, hold on. Let's let's think for a minute. I need to I need to summon mine up. And then we'll do a three, two, one, and we'll say it at the same time. Okay, hold on. I also need to summon mine then. Okay. Okay. All right, I think I have mine. Yeah, I I have mine. I, yeah, I have mine. Okay. All right. All right. Ready? You count yeah. down. Okay. Three, two, one. System Shock Tony Two. Tony Hawk's Pro Man. Skater. God damn it! You you, <laughs> you like waited. I I wasn't trying to. I mistimed yeah. the thing. Oh no! But it was Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. 
Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Okay, yeah. well, those are very different. Um, yeah, those are. Those are, those are oh, why? So you said System Shock 2. Yes. Uh, why? Why System Shock? Um, so I played System Shock 2 a couple years after it came out. Um, probably like 2002, 2003. Um, so it was a couple years old at that point. Uh, and... Uh, I'm trying to remember what sort of confluence of events got me to play it, uh, because I was always more of a console person. I didn't do a lot of PC gaming. Um, I think I was, uh, I, I think I was like looking for something to follow up Half Life because I'd played Half Life a couple years before, mm. closer to when it came out. And I was like, oh, that was a cool experience. Like, you know, and I looked for recommendations of like other science fiction-y, narrative-y, horror-y, um, horror-y games. And so then I played System Shock 2 and it blew my mind uh, <laughs> in the sense that um, never before had I felt uh, quite as, I mean, you know, it's a, it, it sort of, coagulates the the genre that we now call the the immersive sim right and like never before had i really felt immersed in a narrative um in a sort of interactive narrative in in quite the way that i did when i played system shock 2 right uh even even things that now we recognize as extremely trite and hackneyed uh like the audio logs right the audio logs made such a profound impact on me because um there was something about uh having this this uh kind of i mean now i would consider it kind of a theatrical space right these spaces that had been designed um with certain uh stories to tell right environmental storytelling and in addition to that being able to listen to uh all of these poor doomed idiots uh as i was sort of like scrounging through their corpses trying to find nanites in order to heal myself um and just sort of the the also um you know, like the character of Shodan and and the way that she comes to kind of dominate that space, right? She she uh, sort of personifies right the the hostile environment um, in in a really great way that made me really aware of the ways that games can be constructed to tell stories in in ways that I had never really thought about before. Because um, prior to that, I was just kind of like, you know, games are a thing that you do, and sometimes there's a story, and sometimes there isn't um and just sort of like even with half-life right half-life was kind of like you know it was fun i had a good time but it was sort of like just playing an action movie to me Mm -hmm. um and i i like i did not uh respond to anything in the way that i had responded to system shock 2 and that was really when i started thinking like oh here is how here is how all of these pieces are coming together to do a thing and it is making me respond in certain ways and yeah so i think that uh I think that's probably probably my my answer, right? If you uh, want to think about what I'm interested in with regard to games, all of them can be found probably in System Shock 2, all of those things. Yeah, System Shock 2, and this is something that, you know, I've, I guess I've never made this connection up uh, with you, but it makes a lot of sense because you, System Shock 2 introduce, really introduces pacing, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, you know, I, I enjoy plenty of games that were released before that game, but uh, it is a game that has an overarching plot that carries through the levels that feels like it is paced. Yes, um, in a way that like Half Life Two 
it's fine. I I, yeah. I don't have the relationship that many people have to that game, but it has it does not have pacing in any way, right? Like mm-hmm. the pacing is in the um, in the rhythm between shooting and not shooting, as opposed to System Shock Two, which has narrative pacing to it. Um, right, and like yes, yes, no, exactly. Like uh, the the way that the horror of what is happening in this place escalates with each additional deck. Uh, mm-hmm. where you find out like sort of more and more the extent to which um you know the the mini and Shodan, like the way these forces are operating in the world uh uh so yeah oh, okay yeah interesting well it's it's just very funny because uh, you, your games have a very similar uh s- style of pacing to them <laughs> i mean it's a very interesting you know the kind of incremental acknowledgement of what is going on oh that that was already going on, but you didn't know it was going on, that kind of thing. Yeah, okay, that's uh, interesting. I'd never thought about that before. Um, but, uh, well, now you know. Yeah, well, now tell me about Tony Hawk. Wait Pro a minute, Skater. is this psychoanalysis? Yes, it is, it is. <laughs> oh, we're, psycho- we're psychoanalyzing each other. Um, uh, so, yeah, tell me about Tony Hawk Pro Skater and how that makes you feel about your father. Uh-oh. Uh, well, <laughs> my father, Thomas Hawk. Uh, no, I... I uh, Mr. Hawk, he preferred me uh, to say all the time. Uh, daddy, daddy. I'm not daddy. Call me Mr. Hawk. <laughs> Call me Mr. Hawk. Uh, and he does a 720. Uh, no, I, I don't know. I think um, it, it's a game that that does all the things that I'm interested in writing about still, which is it... It demands that you sublimate yourself beneath whatever it is doing. You you can't half-ass a Tony Hawk game. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you can you can play it for fun, but if you want to play that game and do well at it, you really have to become a kind of machine that's good at Tony Hawk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think <laughs> as I round the final corner of my dissertation, and I've written a lot about games, I've written uh, many different. Uh, I'm, I'm glad at this point I could say I've written many different published essays about games. Um, but I would say that the thread that probably goes through all of those is that um, like every every kind of media object, games are machines for turning you into a particular type of player. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way that books make you be a certain kind of reader and films make you a certain kind of viewer, they are disciplinary apparatuses that... Um, that do those things in different ways. Um, and then slowly over time, the accrual of that changes you into a particular, um, you become primed to experiencing those in certain ways. So for example, right. Uh, the way I think about Tony Hawk is basically the way I think about, you know, the, um, the gut reaction that people have to walking Sims, if they really enjoy first person shooters, which is why would I even bother doing this? Um, (laughs) And, and, you know, the question is, like, why would you even bother doing this? Um, at the heart of that is I am used to one particular kind of experience, and I'm not getting that, and instead I'm getting another one, and that feels weird to me. Um, and people have different kinds of uh, reactions to that. Yeah. <laughs> some, some are very good and some are very bad. Uh, but I think that that's, uh, you know, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater does, does that as cleanly as possible, um, meaning that, you know, you got to learn how to hit those damn buttons and you got to learn your timing. You got to learn how to get the maximum amount of air and all those different things. Um, yeah. So I played that game yeah. when it came out 
and I'm still playing them. And uh, I probably th- I probably think about all media objects in the way that I think about Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. They are just <laughs> greater and lesser versions of the platonic ideal that is <laughs> that is Tony uh, Hawk's Pro Skater. Okay, yeah, kind of. So I mean, so, yeah. it's Tony Hawk's Pro Skater that got me into the Dead Kennedys. So, <laughs> uh, all right, you want me to read the next one? Yes, yes, please do. All right, <clears throat> hello. First, thanks for the work y'all do. I've been enjoying each episode quite a bit. Thank you so much. This is me talking now. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, back to the email. Going pretty broad, but I'm wondering why each of you engage with this slash what you want to get out of game studies, study buddies, and the field of game studies as a whole. I know you're both game designers. Is there some benefit or relationship there? Is it about better understanding games or their context for your other jobs? Or is it something entirely different like that it's fun? Thanks, Matthew from Michigan, though I live in Atlanta. Thank you for your question, Matthew from Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is a, this is a nice question, actually, off of the last one we just had, because it, it covers some of the same ground, uh, although it's a bit more pointed in a different direction. So I guess, uh, what do I want to get out of, out of uh, game study study buddies in the field of game studies? Well, um, there... Uh, Matthew is correct in that there is there is a part of this is like practice, right? Like as someone who does make games, I do like to read about people studying games critically and academically because uh, and this is true for like, you know, like regular writing for me as well. Right. And being a literary scholar, um, when you are when people who are trained academically can disassemble objects in in particular ways um and when i say i should say like cognitively disassemble or something uh but anyway you know when when you study literature you learn uh, a variety of ways uh that you can take a story or a novel and pull it apart and put it back together um it gives you a lot of uh rubrics for thinking about how to do this and so uh, in addition to just informing your ability to to do criticism, um, it's interesting for me to take those insights and then try to build a new object from them. Um, so you know when I'm when I'm reading about uh, interactive fiction and sort of like multi-form narratives and things like that, I take a great deal of pleasure in imagining like, oh okay, this is suggesting to me kind of a, a structure. Or a plot uh, that could be could be very very useful in in a game format, right? Um, like I could make something with this idea. Those sort of speculative moments, or those moments where um, an academic uh, writer can abstract a tendency in in a game in such a way that I could be like, oh, okay, this this distills down something that I can now repurpose for a diff- for a different uh, aim. Um, so there is that, uh, and then also. Uh, you know, frankly, professionally, uh, so long as I'm still going to try to make this uh, this whole academic thing work, uh, my uh, dissertation, um, I would very much like to eventually turn into a book, but it occurred to me shortly after having defended the dissertation that what I want the book to be would necessarily... So the, the dissertation um, was very much a historical uh, study, right? Like not as not not like deep historicism necessarily, not as deep as some people can go. I wasn't like going to archives and things like that, but because of what I study, um, the dissertation sort of ipso facto had to be kind of grounded in in the um, 16th and 17th centuries. 
Um, but a lot of my thinking was still being spurred by people writing about contemporary media studies. Um, and I would very much like the book that I eventually produce uh, to have a, a, a complementary half to it uh, that is... Um, and I don't really know what this is going to look like just yet. Some of the work that I'm doing on like Shakespeare and video games is is helping me find my way through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I would like to have something uh, that sort of pulls everything forward a little bit and and allows me to make my overarching case, uh, which is um, you know something about how. Uh, looking at the emergence of the early commercial theater, um, and actually Gina Bloom talks about this a lot, which we will discuss next month, uh, but how the emergence of the early commercial theater sets a kind of template for uh, mass media entertainment um, that is unusually applicable to to video games. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Just because uh, due to the mass media nature of it, I think. Mm-hmm. I think there is something. I mean, and this is me not being a, um, you know, obviously not being a, a theater scholar in any way, but having read quite a bit of that kind of stuff and read a l- more than a little bit about the history of French theater in particular, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Um, sometimes you don't know what you're going to write your dissertation on, and so you <laughs> and you read a bunch of other stuff. Um, but but yeah, there's something to. Um, the way that both of those media from the from jump begin thinking about the relationship to the audience Um, right right the way that oh sorry no no go ahead i was gonna say the way that i would actually phrase this is i think what is what is an interesting um way of paralleling uh theater and video games is that they are very good at implicating their audience Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, like, of course, films and novels uh, implicate the the reader or the viewer in in their own ways, but there is a kind of um, uh, immediacy or like a, a an active implication that happens uh, with theater and games that uh, I think is very productive to parallel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for whatever reason, the commercial film, uh, either in its earliest form, right, like you're. Edisonian Edisonades I can't I can't ever pronounce the <laughs> word but uh, the, the early Edison pictures uh, that are kind of one of the first instances of mass commercial or as close to mass at the time that you could get commercial theater uh, or not theater but film I mean those are these little vignettes that are basically like interesting things to look at mm-hmm. um, and I think for the most part and, and you know maybe this is an unfair characterization but film has m- generally been that uh for the most uh, for the most part in its mass form uh meaning that it's most commercialized form and i even think you know uh i don't have a particularly bright view of games like spec ops the line or the beginner's guide or um uh gosh uh, the wolfenstein games like the two most recent ones i don't think that Mm -hmm. those games are i think maybe some of the stains about like the the claims about the brilliance of those games are overstated a little bit, but you have to grant that they uh, exist in a way that most other commercial games do not. Um, right. And they are doing something different, and they are doing something tactically that is a little bit different. Uh, and you just don't see that happen in blockbuster films as often as you see it happen in commercial video games or commercial theater. Although, right. you know, the massness of theater has changed a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, no, and I, but yeah, no, that's a good way of thinking about it because the, the, 
the thing about like spec ops the line right is like you were secretly being a bad person the whole time and you didn't know about it mm-hmm. um but also like you know that 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 queries uh you know your your moral and ethical agency in ways that um, are, to me at least, right, are very very similar to how how the early modern theater is doing similar things because there are um, all of these concerns. Like, not to get too far into the weeds, we'll talk about this next month. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, because of the religious situation in in early modern England, sort of after the Reformation, and um, how how Catholicism is sort of being imagined versus Protestantism, uh, the idea of of a performance of a bad act, right? The spectacle of kind of depravity um, raises a lot of really pressing questions for like the 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 ethics of the audience. Like, is this making us bad people? And all of the not all of the plays, but many plays of this time have a similar um, sort of tone at the end, especially like, you know, the really bloody tragedies where everyone's lying dead on the stage. Um, there's this sense of like something happened here and you, spectator, you were party to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's that's an interesting uh, thing to me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know it, this is where the like this is where you have to respect, I think, or or at least I have to 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 respect games like Spec Ops: The Line, where it's like I think that the way it is accomplished is maybe a little clunky, and I think probably the way that a lot of early modern theater by our contemporary standards <laughs> probably accomplishes those things in a little bit clunky ways. Um, but it's also doing it, and it's clear that the developers had a perspective on this, and they wanted to generate a certain type of feeling of complicity or um, just recognition of how these games work and what they're asking you to do and how willingly you do it and then they went through with it and they didn't pull any punches um, yeah. and uh, you know that that is respectable the idea that one would use a fairly large budget in order to make a game that is critical and trying to have a bigger conversation than point and click and kill is is important to me oh can you hear that I can. That's I the no that's uh that's Walt Williams. Yeah. He's coming through the wall. He's yeah. He, he went to the wrong house. So, <laughs> folks, just so you know, uh, there are people still doing construction in my basement. I have no idea what that is. Um, I have no idea what they're doing right now. <laughs> it's just it's just uh, Jacob Marley down yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's down there he's down there framing the walls for my bathroom. Um, <laughs> he's gonna come up later after you're asleep. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, just to answer the question really briefly uh, on my end, I, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know what I get out of game studies. Um, I find game studies interesting. Um, in my dissertation, um, despite being a game studies person, I would say that games play kind of a. Uh, certainly second fiddle to film and um, maybe even second fiddle to a couple novels that show up. And that's just just how it is. I find games uh, very interesting and productive to think about. Um, but that's about it. I don't I don't think they're special. I, I think that the reason I'm interested in doing this podcast is there clearly are a lot of people who want to have conversations about games and want to talk academically about games and don't know where to start. And I'm glad that this podcast has been somewhere that people can start. And that's why we decided to do it to begin with, right, was the idea that people might want to listen to these kinds of thoughts uh, in a digestible way that doesn't have them diving directly into an academic book with no knowledge of where to go. 
Um, so yeah, so I mean, that's why that's what I get out of this podcast is this kind of the satisfaction of knowing that even if people disagree or they think that we mischaracterize or that we get things wrong or that we get things too right or whatever, you know, whatever the reception might be of the podcast, <laughs> certainly it's having too right. Uh, you know, some people might think that we just uh, we got the got the answer too right. You're just there's you're nowhere just to too go. Correct. Yeah, too correct. Yeah, there's, there's just no interpretation outside of what we offered. That could we've, happen. We've solved game studies. It might happen. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. We have a lot of listeners. I'm not in all of their brains. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, okay. Oh my gosh. What are they doing down there? I'm very sorry, everyone. All right. So, uh, Cameron and I have conferred. We're going to continue going. Uh, but the concrete saw that is going downstairs might occasionally still be going. For which, again, I apologize. Maybe. Next year, I'll have a podcast where weird things aren't going on in my background. Anyhow, next question. Hey, GSSB gang. I was interested in hearing your thoughts on how video games are classified in Germany. Until recently, to my understanding, they were automatically classified as children's entertainment, hence why blood and guts in German game releases uh, were often replaced with robot springs and bolts. Additional famous examples include the Nazi levels in Doom 2 uh, being removed entirely and a swastika being removed from Doom 1. Doom 1. This is somewhat ironic to me, as traditionals, uh, traditional children's entertainment, fairy tales, Krampus, and things of that nature um, in Germany feature a lot of kidnapping, cannibalism, and murder. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts, Dan. I don't know. I don't know anything about it, Yeah, honestly. I mean, yeah. I, I know what probably everyone else knows about the way that, that German law works there, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know the specificities of that, and I also know that it changed recently. Yes. Um... But I can't... Maybe there's a book about it <laughs> that we can read. Yeah, no, that would be super interesting. Um, I mean, and I would say... Uh, you know, the... Based on just what I've seen here. So, like, for instance, like, the Nazi levels in the swastika, right? Like, part of the problem there is... Uh, they're, they're, like, aside from games and children's entertainment, there were very strict laws in Germany about... Um, where and how uh, Nazi things can be reproduced and displayed. Yeah. Uh, so there's that. And I would also say what is um, like German Germany itself is not uh, unique in uh, sort of children, like what we would call like sort of traditional um, children's media or literature or fairy tales and things like that being grim as hell. Um I think, uh, you know, there's, and we we talked about this a little bit last time um, with, with the Gaunt book, right? There is uh, a, like, children are, are grotesque in ways that we often, and when I say we here, I'm speaking sort of very generally, um, uh, sort of like from a very much like Anglophone Western perspective, right? Like, we have this constructed idea of what children are, which is that they're these, like, little innocent creatures who, uh, you know, don't, like, violence will scare them or it will scar them in some way, um, and blah, 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 blah. And, like, you know, that's probably true, right? But this doesn't mean that kids don't think about violence <laughs> and kids don't think about, like, dismemberment and cannibalism. Um, and so really like what what it would seem to me um knowing almost nothing right is that just 
the fact that all video games were sort of necessarily uh, like pre-classified as children's entertainment and therefore subject to certain standards results in, you know, kind of these weird things where people like, you know, humans instead of having blood are shooting out bolts and springs. Um, but like, you know, even even in the U.S., we have uh, ESRB ratings. Uh, that make fairly arbitrary distinctions between like uh, how much violence is too much violence uh, versus like how much sex is too much sex, which is like any any acknowledgement of sex at all, almost um, right. That rock is it straight up to uh, M at the very least. So I don't know. Like I think it's interesting the ways that we expect children to not know things about the world or like the ways that we shelter them from things. Uh, but also it seems to me that, uh, it's just, that's, that's how it works is adults try to control kids and kids have all sorts of really weird ideas. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I agree. I also think that the comparison to, um, to fairy tales is maybe unfair to some degree because one video games are they come into being in the post-war period um the conditions under which they are created are completely different than fairy tales they are not folk in any way right they are completely mediated they are completely um the products of capitalism like doom 2 is is not it, like you know it's not uh hansel and gretel right right uh, right well we're we, yeah we're completely on the other side at this point of of what norbert elias called the civilizing process right oof is that a word i was gonna say like do, are you are you familiar with this i i am not okay so uh norbert elias who actually might have been german himself i need to double check this real quick um this comes up in early modern studies a lot yeah he was he was a he was a german sociologist um uh this comes up in early modern studies a lot because we start seeing um really clearly what he ends up deeming the civilizing process uh which is kind of um his in in a lot of ways cameron i think you might actually like him because he's he's kind of a pre-foucauldian um basically he looks at history sort of european history i should say and he talks about how like hey you know how we kind of think it's uh bad to burp in public like that wasn't always the case Right. Like the the invention of the things that we call like manners are, are relatively recent. Um, and, you know, in prior times, it was absolutely fine to burp or fart in public or to just like pick a fight. Right. Um, like sort of the, the social codes of conduct, like uh, uh, a lot of the time, like discussion of bodily movements and things like that. Uh or bodily movements, but uh, like waste processes and stuff before uh, the toilet as a thing gets invented and that can go in, into kind of its own room. Um, like everyone has a chamber pot in their bedroom. Everyone's throwing it out the window because we don't have sewers. <laughs> like, uh, so, you know, Elias basically says, uh, you know, there was this thing that happened where uh, we got quote unquote civilized, but it was mostly just a, a change in kind of um, our relationships to to our bodies and their excretions. That's right. Thanks for the question. Um, the next one. Did I did I read the last one? Do you want to read the next uh, one? Yeah, sure. I'll read it. <clears throat> we this actually. Is from... are... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, like, I think we actually already kind of answered this one, but go ahead. Continue. Oh, yeah, we did. Kind of. So this is from Jordo on the Discord. Um, 
says, I would be very interested in learning about how writing becomes part of the game studies canon, considering that most of it seems like it was written by academics, but then there's also stuff like Kawa that was just written by some dude and then republished by University Press. Kawa is a little, maybe a little bit more than some dude, but but yeah, <laughs> also just some dude. Um, who decides when a piece of writing is important enough to consider, and how do they make that decision? Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think we did kind of address this before. Um it is arbitrary <laughs> right the construction of canons is, is it's all arbitrary and a lot of it is politicking and then also a lot of it is weird material happenstance like what yep. books are available to the people who are making the canon like what can you reasonably expect them to know about <laughs> yep uh that's about it yeah i mean i think that the like I was talking about earlier, uh, CLR James is beyond a boundary. I think the reason that it's not a canonical game studies text is purely one of like organization and uh, misrecognition of what that book is about. That's it. Yep. Uh, and you know, I think that this even applies to some of the books that we've read already. Like I think that some people would probably not consider uh, Gaunt's book to be a game studies text, right? I mean, it doesn't right. engage with game studies as a discipline in much, uh, much at all. It doesn't make a claim that it's a game studies book. I mean, it's ethnomusicology. It's pretty clear about where it stands. But obviously it is in, in a broader sense in conversation, uh, mm -hmm. not, not citationally, but what it is talking about and the kinds of things that it finds important about culture in the world and the way that those things play out with one another. Obviously, it is doing similar things and have similar concerns to game studies writ proper. Um, so honestly, I mean, there, I think the real answer to Jordo's question is that it's things like what we are doing here, which is putting things in alignment that generates what are game studies texts, right? Or what yeah. constitutes a discipline. And the reality is that a lot of that is based on, like, the other person, the, the, the people who have power in this instance are editors at university presses mm -hmm. who make a choice about should a book that mentions games, should it go into the game studies um series vertical. yeah yeah vertical yeah for for lack of a better term right i mean that makes a big part of alignment um yeah and where a scholar wants to be yeah no there are definitely probably some people who would not want to be called game study scholars yeah i don't i don't get the sense that gaunt wants to be a game yeah. study scholar she right. she would be if she wanted to be right she would right. say that um and that's fine all right, so our next question is from Red Garlic on the Discord, and this is the the first kind of question that we're going to uh, pass on. <laughs> Not because it's a bad question. So the question at its core uh, is about uh, how to teach games in the classroom um, and how you do that and how you make that work um, and how to integrate that into things like freshman writing courses. Um, that's something I know, Michael, you have a lot of experience with. Um, I haven't taught a freshman writing course with games, but I've certainly taught writing intensive courses with games. Um, and this, I think, is something that we are going to uh, kick off for its own independent episode. That That's either whenever we have a book that's about games and pedagogy, um, or we might just do like a bespoke episode that maybe like we'll put up on itch.io that people can pay for. <laughs> where we tell you what we've done we give you all of our experience for like a dollar um maybe we won't do that but anyway which is just to say this is this is a question that's an awesome question but it's also one that's going to take more than 10 minutes to answer so we're going to kick that off to another time uh then our last question um is 
uh, Damien, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read, read your whole screen name, Damien0815 um, from the Discord. My course uh, is being run by the English and American Studies Department, um, that is the course in Game Studies, and uh, this means that its groundwork is in English Lit Studies, Cultural Studies, and Media Studies, but I get the feeling that there are other approaches, other canons. Um, is there any sense that this will congeal into a single canon anytime soon, and what direction uh, might that take? Uh, and then there's also kind of a, a passing note about um, sort of, and, and Emily actually asked about this too, uh, just sort of a general interest in in what now feels like the ancient history of, of the narratologist versus ludologist debate, how that uh, was constructed, how it's been sort of retroactively reconstructed, and I don't know, what, what might that hold for the future? Who knows? But anyway, there's the question. I'm going to answer the bottom part first. Um, okay. Hey! I think we've done. I think we've done a lot of like partial answering of this question uh, via the other stuff that we've looked at. So the insulin, and then of course Hamlet on the holodeck and half real from um, Murray and Jewel, respectively. I think or uh, Yule. Um, I think the the my position on this question about the construction of that debate is that really it is more productive to look and see what was said than to try to reconstruct a debate. Um, if you really want an answer to this question that is in-depth and helpful from someone who was there, you can look to Gonzalo Frasca's, uh, I think it's called The Debate That Did Not Take Place. If you can't find that, I believe there's a PDF that's floating around. I think it might be an open access text. If you can't find that, please reach out to me and I can direct you to maybe a place to find it. Um... And if you don't want to read an academic article, uh, you can watch Errant Signal, a.k.a. Campster, a.k.a. Chris Franklin's video that also I think is called The Debate That Did Not Take Place, yeah. um, which is him going, him basically reading the frasca and then contextualizing that with a lot of uh, on-the-ground information. So those are some good resources if you are interested in just reading a reconstruction of those debates and why they mattered at the time. There are uh, great resources for that that are not us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that yeah. just uh, I double checked the the Frasca piece is uh, it's the the debate part was the subtitle. It's actually called this is I love this because it is mm, the shade. Ludologists love stories too. Notes from a debate that never took place. There we go. Sorry. So I think I think then the the Aaron Signal video might be right. The Campster video. takes off. Yeah. Yeah. But man, that ludologists love stories too. Oh man. Mm. Yeah, you get a sense of where <laughs> Fresca was. Uh, yeah, uh, in, the, in the whole thing. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I think that is probably just reading the pieces on the ground. And I'll be honest that the um, that there is some fire in that debate, particularly from people like Eskalinen that are not uh, that I don't know if it's is productive to revisit. Um, mm-hmm. meaning that it there's a lot of, of a lot of teeth and um, I don't know if the bite was necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side, the, the kind of top part of the question, um, that there are other approaches and canons to games, um, I think that that computer science and human computer interaction hci certainly have their own sets of canon um mm-hmm. that are people like Fran, uh, Franz myra um and that set of people that are very important like ai in particular yeah 
I wouldn't say I know enough about that, or uh, like Noah Wardrop Fruin or Nick Montfort, uh, which they're a little bit closer to what I would consider what I do. Um, those existed, you should go explore them. Uh, I don't know if they are exactly far away from the general game studies canon, um, but but different types of programs focus on different parts, you know, uh, and I don't know if they're necessarily citing one another all that much either, but... Yeah. But yeah. No, I, yeah, I just second everything. I, especially sort of the, the, I don't even know how to begin to describe this, but like the, the human machine interaction people and sort of like the AI people, like that sort of research is um, approaching a lot of similar topics, but from an entirely different perspective uh, that I just don't know really anything about. And it does feel like, uh, not necessarily a different field, but it does feel like approaching a lot of the subjects from a different canon. Um, and is the canon going to congeal? Like, absolutely not. Like, I, I'm, maybe I'm going to be proven wrong, right? And in three years, there's going to be a, a beautiful unified game studies canon. Um, but, like, canons uh, are a fake idea, first of all. <laughs> Um, and like uh, like language, right? They they tend to like evolve and break down and splinter, and uh, you know, canons within canons, like they spread out, they branch, um, depending on who is coming to the field and what they're interested in, and what they're interested in is necessarily going to be informed by future events that we have no way of anticipating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that if you are, there are people who do both things. Um, and so I would say that there are places where the canons meet. Um, and if you're interested in that, you should go look those up. So these are people like, um, like G Fox Harrell, uh, who's at MIT. Yeah. Uh, Phantasmal Media. That is a very interesting book that it's not really game studies, but it's program. It, it is computer science and cultural studies combined, um, and doing very interesting stuff there. And so you can kind of see how you, one might take, the two or a couple different types of canon or types of writing about games and combine them. That's like uh, an interesting way of doing that. I also think that like the, um, gosh, the, the linguists that we read earlier, insulin, I just couldn't, could not pull the, the name there. Uh, that insulin is a place where this is happening, but you can see where like the insulin book is a really great example of, you can't do all of the things, right? I mean, that book has a, you know, that kind of rundown that I, you know, I was, I was fairly critical of, I think, the rundown of like the philosophy of play of the greatest hits. But ultimately, she's not interested in that, you know, she's not interested in the philosophy of play greatest hits or whatever. Um, she is interested in doing something else. And that's okay. Like, that's, that's perfectly fine. But in order to do the thing that that I would say I do in game studies, which is about theory, it's about looking and doing deep aesthetic readings of games rather than kind of big structural readings of games. You only have so many words you can put in a book <laughs> and you only have so much research you can do. So it's hard to do both. Um, and in order for those canons to congeal, you have to have a lot of people doing both. Yeah. No, so uh, a thought just that I've had um, because also uh, I am... <clears throat> So I am co-editing a, a special issue of uh, a, a journal called Borrowers and Lenders, and it's a journal about Shakespeare appropriation and adaptation. It's going to be about Shakespeare and video games, and uh, I am going to be drafting the uh, intro to that special issue soon, uh, which is partly going to be me having to 
can a kind of uh, history of game studies for people who are going to be coming at this, you know, relatively new. Um, and one of the things that sort of struck me as I've been taking my notes for this is how weirdly uh, interdisciplinary game studies has to be like from the jump, right? Like it cannot just be like, it's always a weird combination of two other fields in some way. Um, and I think that's really interesting, especially because I mean, this wasn't like the idea that we have of disciplines is itself a historical artifact, right? It comes out of sort of the 19th century when we start splitting off into uh, like history versus literature versus rhetoric versus like the, the sciences. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and so uh, I don't know, it's very interesting to me to think about uh, not necessarily game studies as a return to kind of a, a more interdisciplinary mindset, um, but as something that is uh, very complicated for for uh, what we might often tend to assume are fairly stable knowledge categories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a really good point about kind of the historical aberration that is disciplinarity. Yes. Um, and, and you know, maybe this is why I am so appreciative of that set of game study scholars I was talking about before the the medievalists and and classicists. Because, like, if you're a classicist in studying games, what you are interested in is what did Greek people say about games, not what did Greek um, uh, physicians say and what did historians say and what, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. You're interested in just, like, what did a culture have to, have to do? And there are a lot of problems uh, with that kind of, uh, uh, I, I don't know... Um, wide open perspective that that i'm fully accepting of but also that's pretty liberating to be like well i don't i don't have to subset myself into only what thucydides said right right and that's i mean and if to to be properly historical right like uh thucydides is going to get into an argument with someone who we might recognize as working in an entirely different field because yeah. the ways that sort of like intellectual labor was basically um you know, historic for the most part, like the ways that intellectual labor has has been um, sort of divided out in the culture. Uh, it's been like these wealthy men of leisure who do it all. <laughs> like yeah. they're just doing it all together. Like the the idea of having people who do history versus people who do like science, uh, natural physics, or whatever. Like doesn't make sense because they're like, why I have the time? Why don't I research it? Yeah. Anyone who is interested in this, this is this has nothing to do with the classics, but it has to do with the foundation of the discipline of, of chemistry. So it is called um, Philosophical Chemistry, Genealogy of a Scientific Field. Uh, so it's Delanda, Manuel Delanda, not his most recent book, but one of his more recent books. And it is a reading of basically um, history, or, or not history, but the history of chemistry textbooks. Meaning, when did the first book, textbook, that was meant to teach people coming on down the line about chemistry, when did it appear, under what conditions, and then how did that change over time? And he, he does like 300 years of, of chemistry. Um, fascinating. Fascinating book.
when any rando could do chemistry. <laughs> any, anyone who could afford to, like, just get a bunch of sulfur. You, right. You're, you are a chemist. Right. And, I mean, also, this this is also, like, one of the things that Latour harps on, right, yeah. in the early 90s, is that we think of Hobbes as a politician and Boyle as a scientist. But Hobbes, in addition to his political writings, had scientific writings and scientific opinions. And Boyle, in addition to his scientific work and scientific writings, had political writings and political opinions. So... Yeah. Yeah. People, they've always been interdisciplinary. Oh, my God. Well, that's it. That is it. And, of course, that's when they finish running the concrete saw. So, uh, right on time. Yeah. Um, Well, thanks, everyone, for listening this this past six months. Yeah. We've, We've really been working on this podcast for maybe, like, a year now. I was going to say, we're coming up on, we're really coming up on a year, yeah, but we had a big lag between the first episode and the second. Yeah. Um, but we, oh yeah, between recording the first episode and, <laughs> and, and actually releasing anything. Yeah, it took me a minute, but uh, no, it's it's all good now. And uh, But yeah, so just thanks everyone for uh, A, listening. If you, if you listen, that's very helpful for us, of course. Thank you so much. Uh, and for supporting the show. I think, I think we have a fair number. I, I don't have a, like a hard count in front of me. But uh, we have a fairly large number of supporters on the Patreon who support at the tier to get our notes. As of this episode coming out, I don't think our last notes are out. Oh, yeah, no, I don't. I never, I never sent those to you because yeah, so I'm, we'll get I'm terrible. No, it's not on you. I haven't posted them. I didn't ask you <laughs> about it, so uh, it's just been a very busy time. But uh, we'll get those up, and they'll be ready to go. Um, so yeah, we uh, thank you so much for supporting the show. It's a, it's a big deal that. Uh, it you know bought michael a copy of assassin's creed origins yeah <laughs> so that was very important yeah, that i've had no time to play but <laughs> well, but now but oh now. boy oh got boy. that time uh once they're done making your uh your gamer cave yes no that's the, the entire basement is being converted to my gaming cave <laughs> um but but yeah so yeah just again thanks everyone uh we will be making shirts at some point um, over the next couple months, so please let us know what you think should be on the shirt. That would help us out mm-hmm. a lot. Although that the hot dog with a gun is <laughs> already, but yeah, you got you have anything you want to say in closing, Mike? Uh, nothing except thanks for listening. I really enjoy doing this show, and if you ever want to send us any more questions or some sort of comment, feel free to reach out to us at our email address, which is gamestudiesstudybuddies at gmail.com. That's good stuff. Uh, Michael, where can they find you? Uh, You can find me online uh, on Twitter, at WarrenIsDead, and my website, which is correlatedcontents.com. You can find me on Twitter, at cconzelman. That's it. That's That's all you need. That's all you need. That's all you need. All right, well... Uh, we'll be back in January, probably sometime in the middle of January, with an episode about um, gaming the stage. Gina, gaming the stage, right? Yes, gaming the stage, playable media, and the rise of English commercial theater, um, which I will remind you uh, is actually available in open access. Um, so if you want to read along, you don't even have to buy a copy. This book is free online for you to read. You just have to Google it, and it's on the publisher's website. Awesome. Uh, it's it's good. All right. Well, goodbye. Bye.